Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bat Truck Up Podcast. I am Rooster with Justin Super Trucker Martin and man, you may know on Twitter as dude, uh, NJ Port, uh, Mr. Richie Resick. How you doing today, Richie? I'm right. How are you guys? Doing all right. And before we get started, I want to thank OTR Solutions for sponsoring this podcast. They're factoring programs and solutions of taking supporting trucking companies to a whole new level. We can do a whole podcast and everything these guys bring to the de- table and the success stories that come from working with them. But for now, head on over to OTR Solutions slash BTU to learn more, connect with our dedicated BTU team. All right, Mr. Richie, would you please uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself? You are a genuine port trucker, are you not? That is true. Yeah, I'm, in, uh, I'm an owner-operator at the ports of New York and New Jersey. I've been driving for a total of uh, eight years, and I've been an owner-operator for approximately three and a half years, and I've been doing ports for a little bit over four years. Now, when you say owner-operator, let's get this right. You have your own your own company, your own MC dot yet, your own USDOT, correct? No, I am a leased owner-operator. All right. Yeah, that's kind of how I was. I, I used to be leased on Landstar. So, you know, I did have my company, my own LLC, and I was paying myself W-2. But, you know, I was using the t- the, the tag and the plates from Landstar. So, yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that part. Yeah, you know, I have my own LLC, too, and I have a business account and all of that. But, you know, it's just not quite the same as being a full-blown motor carrier. Is that something you plan on doing eventually, or are you just gonna? Are you happy where you're at now? No, I'm not planning on getting my own authority. I'm just, as a matter of fact, I'm planning on going back to being a W two company oh. driver. Hmm. It's one of those can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen deals. Yeah, you know, I just after doing my research and after watching what's happening in California with AB five and talking to us to a few um, experts on this matter. I've come to the conclusion that it's not really worth being an owner-operator because, you know, we're responsible for the truck. Um, you know, every time we go to the shop, we miss a few days of work. Then we pay out of pocket for the maintenance. And then at the end of the day, you know, it's like, you know, we work for one motor carrier. And that motor carrier doesn't really care whether the truck sits or not. They're not losing any money because they just deduct whatever they need to deduct out of our settlement. So, you know, I, I just don't see... Now that I'm in it, I just don't see the uh, the the benefits at all. Yeah, and okay, so we're we're all over here on the East Coast, and all the stuff happening over on the West Coast is still impacting everybody over here. It's a similar case, yeah. Those port drivers out in the West Coast, they're going through the same thing that we're going through here in New York, New Jersey, and the same thing in Savannah and New Orleans and all of that. You know it. Most of these dredge carriers are utilizing the, the, the least owner-operator model to keep their overhead low and to be as flexible as possible. Yeah, I've never been a fan of the least operating model because of that. Um, when I was at Schneider, you know, they would always kind of dangle that in front of you, like, oh, be your own boss, own your own business. And, you know, you talk to three or four other guys that are doing it, and it's like, no, nah, not worth it. Well, see, Snyder, Snyder hits you doubly hard. They're not only leasing the tag to you, they're also leasing the truck. So they're also getting the truck payment out of your pocket as well. So, yeah, 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 go figure. You know, and it all started back in, uh, I think it was like 20, 25 years ago, where 
because of deregulation, you know, you got all these companies losing money from the rate of freight going through the floor and they had to find new streams of revenue. So, you know, booking guys in that are new to the industry and don't know exactly what all that entails, you know, it's a, it's a sucker's game right there. Yeah, definitely. So how, how did you get started? And, and did you, were you, were you a, a company driver originally? Did you start with a big carrier or were you always just kind of in the ports? Um, yeah, you know, I, I first, when I left the military, um, I was unemployed. So, you know, I used unemployment to pay for trucking school. Did you and, drive trucks in the military? Um, I drove hot shots, similar to the similar to what we call a hot shot in the military. Okay, so but, nothing, nothing tractor trailer wise. No, nothing, nothing this big. But it really did inspire me to pursue a career in uh, in, in trucking. Um, and also, when I was in the Navy, my my watch station was Helms and Plainsman on a submarine. So when we were underway underwater, I'll be driving the submarine. So, you know. Driving is something that I like a lot, you know, and uh, when I left the military, I went to trucking school, I got my CDL, and my career started at, at a Warner, Warner Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you get out, out of school, you got to go to the big mega carriers, you know, you got, mm-hmm. got no choice, kind of, because they're all self-insured. So they're the only ones that can really take you with no experience. So I went with Warner, and I did that for about two and a half years. And, you know, believe it or not, I was happy there. <laughs> I was okay. The only problem was is that I met my wife. At then, she was my girlfriend. And I wanted some more home time to be with her. So I quit I quit Warner. And since I live so close to the ports in New Jersey, I said, why not do the ports? And that's where I got started as a company driver at the ports. And then I noticed that everybody around me was an owner-operator. And I said to myself, well, you know, if everybody else is doing it, this is this must be the thing to do here. So then I got into it. I financed a truck from um, from Freightliner, the dealership, and uh, I leased onto a motor carrier. And uh, but quickly, a few months down the road, I started asking myself, like, how am I independent, though? Like, I get all my work from one motor carrier. They tell me what the delivery is paying. They tell me what time the appointment is. Mm-hmm. And where the container goes back to, you know, so I'm not really that independent. That's what I came to, to the conclusion of. Yeah. It kind of sound, kind of sounds like forced dispatch almost, you know. Well, you know, they'll give you the option. They'll be like, oh, do you want to go to Pennsylvania or do you want to go to upstate New York? You know, and if you really think about it, that's not really independence either because the person that's employing you is giving you options. So. It's not really much independence in the first place. It's like you go to a restaurant and they give you a choice of, you know, you want a hamburger or a hot dog. It's not really much of a choice. Who has the uh, better bunks, the U.S. Navy or the Warner trucks? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Listen, on a submarine, we did what's called hot racking. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, oh no. <laughs> and we I had to share. We had to share our bunks with somebody else, with two other people. Jeez. Um, we did an eight, we did a, we did an eight hour rotation. So like you'll be, uh, eight hours on duty. No, what is no six hours, six hours on duty, six hours off duty, and then six hours in a sleeper berth. So that's how it went. So what do you do off duty on a submarine? For off duty, we'll study, 
get qualified for other watch stations, clean, do some maintenance, and that's pretty much it. Underwater. Yeah, there's always stuff to get done on those boats to keep them floating. I think the only thing worse than that in the military is in the Air Force with the missileers. Because at least on the sub, you've got a whole bunch of other jobs to do in other watch stations, whereas the missileers, it's a crew of three guys. And you're, 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 three guys in a hole on the ground. <laughs> yeah, it's no fun. So yeah, being in a being a sleeper berth in a truck must have been like luxurious compared to a sub. Oh yeah, I didn't, I didn't mind it at all. No, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not even that big either. I'm a short dude, so you know it's not a big deal for me to sleep in this bunker. No, I'm six foot. You know, big big truck driver guy, and yeah, the, the truck the cab for me it just gets smaller and smaller the longer you're out on that road. Yeah. It gets kind of depressing, though. If you want, you know, the longest I've ever been out over the road was three months, and it was starting to get really depressing. So, the good thing about the ports is people. A lot of people ask me, "Why do you do the ports that are so bad?" Well, you know, I live close to it. One, the the schedule is very convenient. Most of what I do is local. You know, every now and again, I'll go far to like Chicago or Michigan or Ohio, Indiana. But for the most part, I stay local within a 200-mile radius, and I get the weekends off. I get the holidays off. Um, so, you know, it, the ports, even though it sucks, but it, it's, it's convenient for people who live close by. It's its own special kind of suck. And you, yeah. you, got, and you got some awesome food trucks in that area, too. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah definitely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot better than the roller dogs and the cardboard pizza at the truck stop, I'm going to tell you. Oh yeah, definitely. But you gotta have cash though. Some of them don't accept cards. Yeah, yeah. Which okay, fine. But there's like Square and Venmo. They got options now. That's just laziness. Oh yeah, I know one case where a guy ordered an Uber Eats while stuck inside the port, <laughs> and this guy was just outside, like like you know, confused, like how do I get in here? And it, it was just, it was just weird just to see that. But I don't know how he got his food. That's funny. I used to deliver to the ammo supply point over at Quantico and they have like a pizza guy that's like they know. And they're like, yeah, if you got to park and you're staying here overnight, you know, just call this pizza guy. We let him in and he hooks oh. us up. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's some there's some bases out there that are, you're, you're basically just put like on the tarmac and left for a weekend and other places. They'll put you up in a nice hotel. You know, it's really hit or miss out there. Oh, yeah, definitely. It is hit or miss. Now, when you're picking up uh, boxes there at the ports, you're not delivering to the customers, right? You're just taking them to warehouses where they're unloaded and then eventually resorted and put onto the dry vans. Is that right? Yeah. So we we the port the port drivers we technically fulfill the last and the first leg of the trip for the, for the shipping containers. So what we carry is like just pure one merchandise. It's either like all refrigerators or microwaves and we just restock the warehouses the the distribution centers and then i assume they get put on drive-in trucks and they go otr to other places and deliver it to the stores but we kind of replenish the dc centers yeah when i worked at the packer terminal in philly um my loads were always one of two things they were either sacks of nickel ore or they were giant rolls of paper and each trailer didn't matter if it was like 20 foot or 40 foot, you know, a 20, even a 20 foot container, it would gross 120,000 pounds. Just oh, absolutely yeah. stupid heavy. Oh yeah. Those 20 foot containers, they look small, but they are ridiculously heavy. As a matter of fact, 
I tell dispatch to not give me 20 foot containers. I'd rather stay home and not haul all 20 foot <laughs> containers because they're just awkward to turn with, you know, and I see a lot of people flip over. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, you don't, there's, there's absolutely zero, um, zero forgiveness with those, especially when you're backing too, you know, the longer the trailer is ironically, the it's counterintuitive, but it's, it's easier to back the longer the trailer is. But I, I, I was actually grateful for the time that I was moving those 20 foot containers because that made work at the postal service a lot easier because they have shorter boxes too. Yeah. It takes a lot of practice to uh, get used to backing those things. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awkward to back them up. <laughs> yeah. That 20 will get away from you real quick. I, I did a little bit of work down in Atlanta over at the rail, the CSX rail terminal there back when I was in the JB hunt and those twenties, those things will get out of your, get out of, out of control real quick if you're not careful you gotta take those things real slow definitely back to your time over the road did you do like all 40 lower 48 states or did you mostly just stay on the east coast like how far did they uh end up sending you oh believe it or not i didn't do over the road for too long i did it for a few months and then they offered me a dedicated route from buffalo to elizabeth new jersey to new york city and then back to Elizabeth and Buffalo. So from Monday to Friday, that's, that's all I would do is just go from Buffalo to Elizabeth to New York City and then back, back and forth. And I was happy there. You know, I, I memorized the entire way. I needed GPS. But after a while, it, it did get boring. And I needed to spend more time at home with my, you know, with my girlfriend, then girlfriend. Now she's my wife. But, you know. That's one of the hard parts about being a truck driver is just the time that you miss being at home and, and, and with family and friends. Yeah, and that route, man, you're a glutton for punishment, huh? Yeah, man. <laughs> and a lot of these drivers, too, you know, they, they do ports because they're married, they have kids, they got, you know, a lot of them are Christians or religious, and, you know, they just they just got to be there with their family and to, to, you know, to just be a father. One thing with the port, you're always going to have freight to run, you know, you OTR. You know, you can get out in the middle of nowhere and that, you may have to sit, you know, hey, we're trying to find you a load. We're trying to find you a load. You know, that's a common career killer, you know, for some drivers to leave the company. Oh, yeah, definitely. When you're OTR, you have to deadhead a lot, a long distance just to find a load. Um, in our case, in our case, we usually deadhead either back to the port or from the port to the warehouse. Now, y'all paid the deadhead back or is that is that just yes. blank money? Yes, we're paid. We're paid round trip. Okay. So are you paid per trip or per mile or per hour? We're paid. Most of us are paid a percentage of the load. Okay. But, you know, again, you know, we can't verify what we're getting paid if we're not seeing the freight bill. Exactly. That's another another controversy in trucking right now. The owner operators want to see the freight bill so they can verify if they're really getting that 70% that they're being told that they're getting. And unless we see that freight bill, we can never verify it. No, that's a good uh, point. Oh yeah, you you asked you asked the company to see the freight bill. They're gonna they're gonna put you in there with a lawyer and have you sign all kind of uh, non disclosure agreements and everything else. So you know, even if you get to see it, you can't say nothing about it without being sued. Well, and even any company that refuses to show you that bill, do not you better run, not walk away from them. <laughs> well, you know, I jokingly said to dispatch, "Oh, let me see the freight bill." By the way. And uh, they, they just laugh. They, they laugh because they, they know I'm a joker. I'm, I joke a lot in the office. I get along with my dispatchers. When I was on military freight, 
you know, we would have to go inside to the offices and sign for all the paperwork and everything. And so we would see the bill of lading and we would see like what our company was getting paid for that load. And you're talking like a little ammo box with maybe a single stick of dynamite going from, you know, Washington state to Virginia somewhere. And just the, I mean, this was in 2010. So the rates race back then were just absolutely stupid. I can't imagine what they're what they're at now. Well, from what I've heard, the military contracts pay pretty well. It's one of those things where like it's hard to get into, but once you're in, you're you're as long as you're not like a complete screw up company wise, it's it's a really easy living. Yeah, you can always rely on the government to pay the workers well. <laughs> oh yeah, I get to like some bases where you touch nothing. You don't even like look at the stuff most of the time. They'll have two guys in the truck with hammers and they put the box in the truck and they, they take two by fours and they measure and cut it and then they hammer it. Into the tra- into the trailer, they call it block and bracing, and those guys swinging the hammers are making like thirty five, forty an hour. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> Just, that's good. You know, I think I think we all deserve a good living. Yeah, a lot of them are like reti- it's retired military mostly. It's like one guy gets out, and then his friends are like, "Hey, we got this job lined up for you." So it's always that kind of deal because you know trying to get those jobs, we ain't gonna find them. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those. It's not what you know too, you know. Yeah, I see. I see. That's a good point. So you were okay. Your your record was three months out on the road. Mine was six. Rooster, what was your uh, record being out? About three. You know, uh, try to remember back when I was with uh, yeah, it was with a uh, Schneider. They sent me out there to Compton, out to their rail yard to help out. And from when I left the house, I picked up at Macon, Georgia. Took that almost all the way to California. It was. Yuma, I think. Then they deadheaded me into LA. I worked there 10 weeks. Then wow. they took their, you know, their, 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 their dear sweet time getting me back home. It was, I'm actually, I think almost four months. And, and, and Compton's a really, Compton is a really cool place once you learn where to be and where not to be. Yeah. My first time out there, I was driving team with Schneider and it was my first time out to California. And we were at this warehouse and we go inside and it's just people slinging foam stuffing for like furniture and stuff into the back of the trucks. And uh, my co-driver, Shane at the time, asks one of the guys like, hey, uh, we're hungry. Where can we go to get something to eat? And like everybody just kind of stops and looks at us and they're like, dude, it's 8 p.m. Do not go out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they closed the, they closed the gates at four, four o'clock for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even remember. So my, when I was out for six months, I like had it in my head of like, okay, I'm going to do this. And we'll, cause I, I didn't have like a house or car or nothing. I was living out of a suitcase, but like, once you have it in your head of like that time is coming up, that's all you think about is like, I gotta get home. I gotta get home. And like, for me, home was just the hotel across the street from the Schneider operating center in Indianapolis. I wasn't really doing anything once I got there anyway, but it, it still was like, you know, something you just had to get done. Were they, like, really hard with jerking you around, Richie, about trying to get you home sometimes? No, because when I was, when I did a dedicated route from Buffalo to New York City, I went home on the weekends. So, oh, right. I, okay, I didn't yeah. really have that issue, no. Yeah, dedicated is nice. I My last thing I did with Schneider was working the Aurora account out of uh, Indianapolis. And they, they run it on a spoke. So, like, you, you start at the center of the hub in Indianapolis, and then you go out on routes, and the longer you're there, you know, they'll put you on a dedicated lane. But I was the guy that was like covering other people's lanes if they were hurt or sick or on vacation or whatever. So one week I would go up to Canada, come back. And then the next week I'd go, to, to go down to like Miami 
and come back. And when you're doing that in like March where it's 20 below in Winnipeg, but then 95 degrees in Miami, <laughs> you're, you're packing like three different suitcases of clothes with you just because you never know what, what you need <laughs> to have packed with you. All right. Since we got talking about LA and all that fun stuff, Richie, what is your opinion on this whole AB5 situation? I support AB5. I support it because um, once you accept that you're not independent, AB5 starts to make a lot of sense, especially in the ports. Especially in the ports. Um, You know, a lot of people get nervous when you say the U word, union. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I just I just think that it makes a lot of sense in the ports, man. It just it just really does because, you know, if you really think about it in the large scheme of things, the port drivers we're the biggest port stakeholders. We outnumber everybody, but you know we have no clout. We have no negotiating power. We have no seat at the table. Um, a lot of these port stakeholders they just do whatever they want and they implement any type of policy they want. And there's no type of um, recourse or repercussion. You know, the drivers can't defend themselves. So, you know, the drivers need some type of collective voice at the ports, you know. And, and, and you know, it, it, it sucks to see a lot of these motor carriers, you know, small, small mom and pop motor carriers, the struggle. And it's probably going to be more expensive for them to convert their uh, owner operas into employees. But, you know. It, it's sad that it had to go this way, but to be frank, you know, I don't think the owner-operator model was supposed to be the majority at any given sector of the trucking industry. Well, especially with the ports, because all you're doing, when you have that many people competing amongst each other, we saw that with the mega carriers, it, it drove the rate of freight down. And so when you have that many companies all in one small area fighting amongst each other for table scraps, you know, it's just going to drive things down even further. My issue with AB5, I think, was that it's the wrong tool for the problem, I think. I, I do think that with that many drivers against what they're hauling, they do need to, like, have a collective voice. I just don't know if the union down there that was pushing for uh, AB5, I don't think they're with the drivers. I think they're just there to try and get more more dues-paying members. Well, yeah, I agree with that. You know, everybody knows that the Teamsters and a lot of these unions have lost a lot of membership throughout the years. And uh, they're trying to replenish their coffers. Everybody knows that. But the thing is, is that if you get converted into an employee, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be forced into a union. You know, for a union to take, you know, for a union to happen, you need to have an election. So if all the, mo- if, if, if all the owner operators who have just been converted to employees vote not vote no on a union, then there's no union. You know, it's not. It's not guaranteed that there will there will be a union presence in the port. Although they have a small presence, it's not very significant. Yeah, no, it's it's a huge risk for the unions for sure because they've been deleting tweets as fast as they can. But you know, from the beginning, they've been saying the whole point of AB five was to get rid of the lease operator employment model and get everybody converted over to W two employees and then eventually union members. But I don't think they realize that there are people out there that would be totally fine and comfortable with taking a pay cut and still maintaining their independence, you know, and regardless of what you feel about the lease operator model, it's like that's as much independence as they can in in their situation. Yeah, definitely. There's some people out there that they don't mind being a lease on owner operator. I've spoken to a few who had their own authority at one time 
and then canceled it and became a leased owner operator again uh, due to market conditions. But, you know, some of them, they're, they're fine with that. You know, they know how to do their taxes fine. Um, you know, they don't mind being dispatched and uh, dedicating all their work to one motor carrier. But the at the end of the day, though, I think that the owner operators should at least have the option to collectively bargain. You know, at, at before AB5, we didn't even have that option. Now that AB5 is there, now they have that option at least. But I've always, you know, I've always advocated for an alternative to AB5. And I, I call it antitrust liability protection. Um, according to the research that I've done, the only thing that's preventing owner-operators from collectively negotiating for better terms and conditions is the antitrust laws. You know, technically, a bunch of little corporations are not supposed to come together to collectively negotiate for better working conditions. So, you know, if if Congress really wants to give the owner operator choice or an option to organize, at least give us antitrust exemption. That's what I would that's what I say. Basically going into this, you know, AB five is you know, like we said, it's gonna push away the owner operator models. Some people think it is a good idea for if you you're gonna be a trucking company, go ahead and get your MC dot and USDOT and set yourself up right. Some of the drivers you know, it's kind of like, are you, are you going to take full responsibility for yourself or, you know, you're going to get your own plates and that, you know, some of them don't want to do it either through, they can't afford to go all the way through the process or, you know, they got tired of being a company guy and they want to try make it, make themselves into a truck owner, you know, possibly up into a fleet, small fleet owner, you know, uh, but, you know, going through and researching all this, you know, the AB5 was written by a union activist who basically blankly said on Twitter, you know, this is after we get AB5, we're going to put everybody into a union. And, you know, like Rich was saying, union membership's down. You know, about 10 years ago, it was up around 55,000 members for, for the Longshoremen Union. Now they're, I believe the 2020 number was, you know, almost 20,000. Well, less than half. Yeah, so they're hurting right now. Plus, they have the whole, uh, what I call the War of Extension Court hanging over their head from up in Port of Portland, Port of Portland, excuse me, back in uh, 2012 when they got into a fight with the uh, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers over plugging in the refrigerated containers. That's been going through the courts, and you know it's now being currently retried. But you know they they're looking at a 19 million dollar settlement, but they only have uh, according to what they submitted to the court, you no know, nine million in the bank. So. If they lose that court battle up in Oregon, you know, they're going to, have to go bankrupt. So what's this fight that they're fighting about? Back in 2012, they they got into a little bit of a scuffle with the electrical workers union over plugging in the refrigerated containers when they come off the ship. There were two jobs. The port operator, which is a Philippine based company, they awarded it to the electrical workers union because, you know, it's electrical. You know, you're plugging in a plug in. Mm hmm. But the the uh, longshoreman union got a little little bit mad about it. So they're thinking that's supposed to be their job because it's on a port. Yeah, it's on a port. So they got mad. They started to slow down. Well, here's the problem: when they announced the slowdown, they said they were going to slow down against the port of Portland, not the port operator. Port of Portland had no say in this, so they struck against somebody that was outside of the problem. Well, that's illegal. 
So this whole thing went down. It went all the way up to President George W. Bush, who was in the office at the time. And, you know, he brought the hammer down on him, put him in the court. And so this started off as a, a nuclear verdict, an almost $100 million judgment against the Longshoremen Union, which would have, you know, been devastating to him. Yeah. You know, you know, it's 10 times the money they had in the bank. So they would have been forced to bankruptcy, liquidate the, you know, the union pensions, everything they had, you know, try to pay it off. Probably would have got the uh, AFL-CIO involved to try to pay that bill. So now it's went through the court. They got the judgment brought down to I believe it's 9.6 million, which is no, or no, 19.6 million, which is still over what they got in the bank. So they will still face bankruptcy if they lose this case. So what's the best thing to do if your bank counts low? You know, you get more members. Guess what gives you, gives them a hell of a lot of members. 70,000 truckers alone with AB5. Well, AFL-CIO, they're a coalition of unions. Everybody from truckers to porters to service unions. So in order to get them, you know, get more membership, hey, why don't we just get rid of all the independent models and force anybody to, you know, going to a W-2 and going to a union. Yeah, now this stem, this all stemmed from arguing over who can plug in electrical two, outlets. Two electrical cords. <laughs> then, yeah, to make matters worse, everybody will be a W-2 taxpaying employee. Well, guess what? California loves to waste money. You know, they got a, a high-speed rail that, you know, they was, it was going to cost them eight or nine eight or nine billion dollars to start off with. Now it's up to, upwards of 30 billion. Where's that money got to come from? Well, you know, tax revenue. Well, independent drivers, you know, they either pay their taxes quarterly or some just wait to the end of the year, you know, up in April to pay their taxes. Well, without a steady stream of tax income, guess what? You know, some of these pet projects can't happen. And, you know, the politicians that promise them don't like that. Yeah. So guess what? You know, you bring in AB5, you get rid of all the independents, you put them all W-2s. Guess what you get? Millions of month upon millions of people coming in with weekly federal, state, local, special local option sales taxes, school taxes, you know, every other kind of service tax you can think of, because God knows there are a bunch of them in California. So, you know, uh, don't expect Governor Newsom to get off his butt and try to get rid of this, because guess what? He's in D.C. trying to get groomed for 2024. Presented with facts like that, it's easier to see why it's so hard for the trucking industry to get an exemption for AB5, whereas everybody else you know, Gothers, especially including Uber and Lyft, who the law was intended to go after. Oh, we'll take a moment one more time to thank our sponsors. If you haven't gone to otrsolutions.com slash BTU yet, here's your reminder. I'm not sure how to say it, but factories, guys, just makes it easy to focus on driving your success, helping you grow your company. They've gone as far as even offering custom company website services and email address setups so you can better negotiate higher rates with brokers. Also helps you get that beautiful Dunn's number. Uh, there's so much opportunity out there, and OTR Solutions is your ticket. So head on over to otrsolutions.com slash BTU and check out what they offer. What advice would you give to like drivers that are trying to get into the trucking industry right now? The advice that I would give them is to first do their research, you know, as much as possible. Ask as much questions. And, um, you know, don't assume that every truck driver knows what they're talking about because when I was a company driver and I would ask an owner operator also, so you're independent, right? They'll be like, yeah, yeah, I'm independent. And then I'll ask them, so how's it work though? Do you pick your own loads? Do you book your own loads with the freight brokers? And they're like, oh no, the dispatches gives me options. 
<laughs> and at that, you know, I was naive. You know, I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that sounds pretty independent. Yeah, you're getting options. Yeah, you know. So a lot of the uh, yeah, when I was a company driver, I used to believe, you know, what a lot of these owner operators would tell me. I would just look up to them, and uh, and then now that I'm an owner op, least owner operator, now I look up to the independent drivers who have their own authority and everything. So you know, a lot of a lot of people think that the grass is greener on the other side, but I, I, it's just all brown to me, man. I might, I might sound pessimistic, <laughs> but it's all brown. It's all brown grass. It, it's just hold. It's just holding the dirt together, right? It's, it's, <laughs> exactly. you're not, it's not growing anything. It's just holding stuff together. <laughs> exactly, man. Exactly. And uh, in regards to that whole, you know, the, the state of California wanting their taxes, and taxes, and everything. Listen, I spoke to somebody at the IRS. They know what's happening. They know that a lot of these owner operators are making $130,000 or $140,000 a year. And they're writing off a lot of um, a lot of their expenses and they're reporting losses and everything. They know what's up, man. They, they, they weren't born yesterday. Yeah, the first job I had at the Packer Terminal, they paid ten ninety nine, dollars Literally, all you're doing is you go in the port, they put a box on your chassis, you take it across the street to the rail yard, drop it, and go back. So on a good day, you're doing anywhere between 8 and 10 trips. And I, I lasted like three days there because the first day, I, you know, I'm still learning everything. So I only did like two or three trips. The next day I did like seven trips. So I'm like, all right, I got this. And then the next day it's like half the chassis you pick up have busted tires. So you got to get those fixed first. And it just seemed like every time any, anything that happened that made you lose money, it was something out of your control. And so I just got out of it. They call it Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Oh, every yeah, every day. And it's never the same thing twice. It's it's every day you're learning new ways of, of how things can go wrong. And uh because I quit on like the third day, they never paid me. So those those trips <laughs> I ne- I never paid taxes on it. The company doesn't exist anymore. They went bankrupt, I think, like a year later. I, I mm. drove past the building where they were leasing and yeah, all the trucks were gone, the the, the parking lot was all overgrown with weeds. So, you know, that's and that's taxes that the city of Philadelphia and the state of Pennsylvania have missed out on. So just um, scale that up across, you know, the entire port of Los Angeles right now. And that's kind of what you're dealing with. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, I spoke to a guy recently, too, out in the ports of Los Los Angeles and Long Beach. You know, he told me he couldn't buy a house because of the whole tax issues with 1099 and everything. It's more complicated to buy a house as an independent contractor than it is as a W-2 employee. Really? Because yeah. you don't have like a proof of income. Well, it, well, when I was buying my house as a truck driver at Warner, you know, my accountant, the the, the guy who's approving the, the loan, kept asking me, "Well, how much you get paid an hour?" And I had <laughs> to explain to him, "Well, I don't get paid by the hour; I get paid per delivery." Mm-hmm. And then I go, "Well, it, it it's just a lot easier for them to to gauge how much you can afford when you're being paid an hourly rate." Versus mm-hmm. the percentage of, of, of each load or or a cents per mile or this and that. It's just, it just makes their job and their life a lot easier if you tell them, oh, I get paid $25 an hour or $35 an hour. Well, and one thing a lot of those guys that are 1099 do is, you know, they, they have this thing called an ownership draw where you can, you know, just pay yourself so much whenever you want. You know, you don't, you're, you're supposed to pay the taxes in on it, but a lot of people don't. 
They don't go through and they don't use a payroll company, you know, like ADT to go through and, you know, write the check for you and take the checks out. So when you try to do something like that, like buy a car, buy a house, you don't have a, you don't have any bank statements. You don't have any tax statements, you know, to prove that, you know, you, you were paying yourself. Right. So that that's like a big red flag for those guys. No. Now, if you go through and you set your business up, right. You know, you, you know, you can get your tax numbers, your duns numbers, all that stuff and do everything like you're supposed to. Then it's a whole lot easier. You know, you're, it would look just like you're work for another company that paid you right. Yeah, let's be honest with ourselves. Though. A lot of these guys are not doing it right the right way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're not. They're not. You know, a lot of these guys, you know, they're, they're just average working Joes and they're just trying to get ahead in life and make something of themselves and buying a truck. Say, you know, they go around town bragging about, you know, oh, I'm an independent contractor. I own my own business. I'm my own boss. But then when it gets slow, they're calling dispatch and asking them, oh, you got anything for me today? You got anything for me tomorrow? You know, so. You know, I just, I just feel very um, disillusioned with this whole owner-operator stuff. Honestly. Yeah, well, Rachel Premack just yesterday put out an article um, interviewing three different drivers that uh, were 100% independent, and they just got out of the industry altogether, or went to, you know, back to being company drivers. And these aren't rookie drivers who are fresh out of CDL school and leasing on to make a carry. These are decades-long veteran drivers with, you know the best experience you can, you can get. And it was tough even for them to be 100% uh, independent. I just don't see how, you know, somebody new to the industry makes it in in this kind of environment. Well, I got one friend who she became completely independent. She skipped the whole lease owner operator phase. You know, she went from being a company driver to a licensed motor carrier she did it the right way, to be honest with you. And, and she did that because she has the experience before being a truck driver. She used to work in the office of a trucking company. You know, she's she used to deal with the freight brokers and the freight forwarders and dispatching and all that stuff. So she had the experience of the administrative side of trucking. So I think that is what gives some people an advantage over others. Well, that's why we just, you know, one of the things just had, we you know, you know, record amount of people coming into the industry and, and, you know, getting their own authority and all that. Then, you know, a couple of months ago, there was this big wave on YouTube of videos. Uh, why is the government coming after me? Why is the government coming after me? You know, C- CM- FMCSA is sending me letters, you know. Well, uh, I guess you did remember, you know, 90 days after you start a company, you got a mandatory audit coming. So, you know, they're <laughs> going to make sure you're doing your job right. So, yeah, that's the easy way to weed out the, the wheat from the chaff on that. You know, yep. you didn't do your job right. You should have known 90 days. They were going to want to have a sit down with you. You email them all your stuff, all your tax papers, all your, your bills, you know, make sure you're doing your job right. Yeah. You know, having a trucking company is a lot of paperwork involved too. A lot of people don't understand that. You got to keep a lot of records and stuff like that. And yeah, I don't want to deal with it. You know, I, to be frank, I'm just like, you know what? I just think it's better being a W two employee because you don't worry for the you don't own the truck, so you don't gotta worry about the maintenance or the iftas or this and that. You know, you park the truck, you go home, and that's it. You know, your life is simpler. That was what was great about being in the postal service was you know I clock in, I do my route, I can stay, do some overtime if I want, but as soon as I'm clocked out for the day, it's in the rearview mirror. I don't even think about it. 
Yep, yep. And sometimes that peace of mind is worth it, you know. Yeah. You go home and relax, and you gotta worry about oh, the truck broke down. I gotta take it to the shop next week, and if they could see me that same day, because you know you take your truck to the shop, they're not gonna see it that same day. They might see it next the next day or the day after that, you know. So, you know, being a, a lot of people, a lot of people like to bash, you know, being a W two, like oh, you gotta, you you don't you don't have freedom, you know, you can't reject loads. Yes, you can. I used to reject loads all the time when I was W two. I I refuse to drive in New York City. You know, it's just too hectic. <laughs> it's too crazy. You gotta know the streets like the back of your hands because there's a lot of there's a lot of low bridges. You know, and as a W two employee, I used to reject loads. So people, so that whole nonsense that oh, you can't reject loads when you're a company driver, that's that's a bunch of nonsense. You could absolutely reject loads for safety reasons, or for reasons that you feel like you you might not be experienced enough to drive in a certain area. You know, those are legitimate reasons that to reject a load as a W two company driver. Absolutely, the easiest way to reject a load as a company driver, you got two options: one, I don't feel safe, or two. Send that to me over the Qualcomm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have a dispatcher that tries to do you favors, and you know they, they run you kind of hot. And then if you get uh, over on your hours, you know of course they leave you out to dry. But anytime you you can see it coming, you're just like, okay, yeah, that sounds great. I'll I'll run you know twenty hours straight. Send that over. Send that to me over the Qualcomm, please. And then it's just radio silence. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I remember when I was uh, at Warner. I was uh, driving to Virginia and I was dozing off and a lot of drivers, they feel like intimidated. Like they, like they have to get there on time. Like they can't, I just pulled onto the side of the road into a dark field, empty lot. And I told dispatch, I'm too tired and fatigued to continue driving safely this truck. And that's it. They cannot argue with me on that. They have to let me sleep by law. They cannot fire me for being safe. And send that and send that over the Qualcomm too. That way, it, you know, exactly. A, a lot, a lot of these drivers, and this is a, this is our downfall as truck drivers. A lot of us do not know our rights. We have a lot of rights, believe it or not, and we have we need to know how to use it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people think that big uh that big green notebook, you know, the federal guidelines is like rules against us. Well, there are some rules in there that that company has to follow as well. You know, that can you know put them in front of the courtroom as well. You know. Exactly. I, they'll never do it. But something I wish that the, the Schmitz would do is, you know, instead of driving, they need to pass on their wealth of knowledge, I think, to the community at, at, at large. You know, those guys, they're I think they're very secure in protecting themselves against that, that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of people out there either just through either ignorance or they just have no idea. But every day you go to any TikTok thread or Twitter thread that the Schmitz are commenting on and they're just schooling people left, right and center. They should, be, they should be giving like master classes on, you know, rights that drivers have and ways that they're protected against uh, unbearable bureaucracies. Exactly. I think in every truck driving school, instead of like focusing so much and just passing the CDL test, they should have also an orientation course telling you what your rights are as a driver. You know, a lot of these drivers, they don't know their rights, man. And, and it's, it's really eroding the quality of our industry because... We're, whether you like it or not, we're already a collective whole. Whether we're organized or not, we are already a collective whole. And mm-hmm. when the vast majority of the port drivers, in my case, and the port drivers aren't well educated in their in their rights as drivers, it just 
it, it erodes the quality of the industry. Yeah, and the unions are getting behind it too, which is which was surprising to me because you know, the, the first day of protests in Oakland, there's some videos of drivers getting heated and port employees coming in and they're they're yelling at the drivers for blocking them in. But you go on TikTok or wherever now, and everybody's friendly. It's all smiles. I I, I think the union leadership kind of came down and talked to their guys of like, hey, you know, we're actually all together on this. So kind of get with the program. Well, well, you got to look at this port, you know, the Pacific Maritime Association, they're the collective bargaining group for the ports. They now have the Longshoremen Union, the Railroad Union, and now the independent truck drivers against them. This puts the unions in a great position because the, the, the ports can't do anything. They don't have anybody to unload the ships. They don't have trains that'll run the, that they don't have. They could not have trains that hold a freight out for them. And they also have, don't have the independent guys to run the freight out for them. So they're, they're screwed. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, a longshoreman once told me if the drivers were organized, you guys would be more powerful than we are. Oh, 100%. A, long, a longshoreman told me that. And it's well, now, uh, well, they got something to organize around now. They got the perfect topic, AB5. <laughs> yep, yep. They may yep. not be in a group. They may not be in a group. They may not have a figurehead to speak for them, which is, to me, first one of the first things that ruins collective bargaining is having a speaker, uh, a, a figurehead to speak for you. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of people think, you know, well, the, the union is a good thing. The union is a good thing. And this is what I bring up. Go back to October of 2018 to the UPS union. The, the Teamster Package Division overruled the union vote and ratified the contract. They went through and found a loophole in the union constitution and went over their driver's heads. When the drivers you know, went over 54% voting against the contract. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, having having union leaders try to talk on behalf of any group like that, it's always a challenge. You know, I always see whenever I see like Amazon employees at a warehouse somewhere trying to you know get together and start a union, all you got to do is a little bit of digging into any of these guys' like online presence, and they're usually the most like the most radical activist type. Whereas most people that are working there that want to start a union, they're just wanting a little bit of extra money per hour a little bit better working conditions, you know, a couple of guarantees here and there. They're not looking to start a workers' revolution. They're not there to look to smash capitalism. They're not there to, like, overthrow the bosses and take over the company. And that's why I think a lot of those movements fail is the people that are at the at the spearhead of that movement, they're too radical for a lot of the employees that they're trying to bring along. We're in, you know, they're just like, hey, man, I just want to get, like, a little extra money in my pocket and, you know, maybe some paid sick time. Yeah, a lot of these guys who are very, very um, extreme activists, they don't stick to the bread and butter issue, you know, to the meat and potato issues. They go off, they start quoting Karl Marx and, and this and that, and they start using fancy words like petite, bagorzi, or whatever. And, you know, if you're most of these truck drivers here at the ports, you know, a lot of them, they're, you know, they're immigrants, they don't speak English very well or fluently. So, when you start talking to them like that, they like, you just lose them. You completely lose them. <laughs> or they're or they're from countries where systems like that were implemented and uh, they couldn't get they couldn't yeah. get fast enough. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, a lot of them, a lot of them do come from very oppressive countries with like authoritarian regimes. Um, you know, Venezuela, Cuba being one of them. You know, they're very they're very anti democrats and anti liberal and all of that. Which you know, it's all right. You know. They have their choices, but 
they need to also moderate themselves too because like <laughs> the Democrats compared to like Cuba or Venezuela is like a bunch of capitalists compared to those people. But you know, there's so much diversity at the ports, man. You know, we got people from all over parts of the country. I was at a meeting the other week, about three weeks ago, at a port drivers meeting of an organization called Camineros Unidos. And uh, they're trying to organize something. Um, they're, they're, they're more like a mini OIDA kind of thing. Uh, not necessarily a labor union, but, you know, they had the whole meeting in Spanish. And this one guy stood up from Guyana. He stood up. He's like, hey, you guys are going to start speaking English or what? <laughs> so, you know, it's just it's very challenging at the ports, especially in New York and Los Angeles, because, you know, we got just a whole bunch of mix of people and. And, uh, you know, they come from countries that are very oppressive, where democracy is a sham. So they really don't trust anybody or any type of labor organization or anything like that. Yeah, I think once with, with the, the death of Hoffa and, you know, the collapse of what the Teamsters had been, um, we've just never seen anything like that since then. It really saddens me that there isn't like a I don't like being partisan about it, but all the labor movements in this country since then have all been left wing. And you don't see a right-wing labor movement. And that's kind of what Hoffa was. Um, also, he was competing against the unions at the time. You know, the unions that we have today are a monopsony, not a monopoly. Exactly. Yes, yes, I completely agree with you. As a matter of fact, when I was in H H Hagerstown, Maryland, with the, with the Freedom Convoy, I was talking to a few of those people. And I said, hey, listen, you know, this could be a conservative worker movement. A conservative workers movement is completely mm -hmm. different from, you know, a left wing or, or, or a liberal workers movement. But, you know, it's just it's just really hard to get these right wing guys to just think of themselves as workers instead of like, you know, anything else. And, and that, that whole Freedom Convoy was awesome because it was it was organized, but it lost its 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 it, it lost its potency by labeling itself a freedom convoy instead of a workers movement, in my opinion. I think that's just a generational gap, too, because you talk to guys older than them. So, like, in the Postal Service, I was in Philly, and a lot of the guys that I work with over there either were former Hoffa guys or they worked with guys who were Hoffa guys. And, man, I, we got to get some of them on the podcast eventually because the stories <laughs> that they had of, like, what things were like back then and, like, just the absolute, you know, do not, you know, they, they take no guff from anybody. And that kind of stuff is, is just gone. They didn't, they didn't see themselves as like, you know, a, a, a class thing or whatever. It was just like, this is my job and my union has my back. And, you know, they're better than the union that I used to be in. And, you know, that's, that's why Hoffa was able to grow the Teamsters into the largest labor union this country has ever seen. One thing about Freedom Convoy, I didn't like it from the start. I mean, when they formed up over in California and the West Coast, you know, their original route was to take, and this is in the spring, their original route was to take I-80 across Wyoming in the spring. When you're in this convoy, you're running empty. Who in their right mind would go in mass across I-80 through Wyoming in the middle of windy season with the average winds of 60 miles an hour with empty rigs? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're asking for be, be rolled over. I mean, the, those guys, those towing companies out there that's running that scam, you know, $25,000 to get you no know, towed out of the ditch from being blowed over. They were just licking their chops waiting for these guys to come out there. Yeah. 
No, it, it all comes down to a lack of leader or not even a lack of leadership, but just poor leadership. They're well, completely well, when you when you look at these leaderships, though, you they're not truckers. They're they're politicians. Look at the Canadian Freedom Convoy they had up there. You know, yeah. the late the, the lady that was in charge of it. She wasn't a truck driver. She was the treasurer for the Maverick Party, a political party up in Canada. Yeah. Now, when I was um, in the Postal Service, you'd have guys, you know, the longer you're there, the, the, the more you get like guys to try to push you into running for the union um, office and all that. And I had my own issues with the union there at the time. And I would always joke with them that, like, anytime, so, oh, Justin, you should run for office or Justin, you should be shop steward. And I'm like, do not give me that power because I will, just, <laughs> I will burn this place to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, you know the I know this guy who's 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 really you know trying to organize port drivers, but like more of a of a grassroots kind of thing. He says that there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians. So yeah. in, yes. in, a, in yes. other words, everybody wants to be a leader. Everybody wants to be the king of the drivers and everything like that, but mm-hmm. nobody wants to be a good follower. And that's what you need in a strong movement is a good is a good base of good followers. And those guys that usually jump up first and want to be in charge, you know, and help out, you need to background check those guys as hard as you can because there's 100%. usually something, there's there's usually something a little bit screwy with them. Well, it's also just the nature of the industry too. Like anyone that's qualified to be in that position, they're in a totally different industry. They have better things to do. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I know a guy out here in the ports of New York and New Jersey. He's been trying to organize drivers for like the past twenty years. And, you know, after a while, he kind of gave up and he switched sides. Now, instead of being on the workers side, advocating for or unity, now he's an employer hiring other people. And a lot of these movements, too, they fall apart because the leadership becomes the employer. And that's where that's why AB5 was such a, a um, defining moment. Because it drew a line. It was before AB5 it was this grayish area between W2 and motor carrier called the owner operator. You know, we weren't really employees, but then we weren't really licensed motor carriers. So we were in this grayish area. And AB5 drew a line in the sand and said, okay, if you're this, you're an employee. If you're that, you're an employer. So a lot of these previous movements to, to, to organize port drivers fell apart because the owner-operators would get a chance to become an agent for a network or they'll become a licensed motor carrier. And then all of a sudden, their agenda has changed. All of a sudden now, it's like, oh, wait, wait, guys. We can't be organized because of this and that. You know, so... You know that that's one of the that's one of the, the important aspects of AB five is that it just it defined who's an employer and who's an employee. Yeah, well, divide and conquer works well because <laughs> it has a proven track record. Um, my advice, I think, to drivers that are stuck in a situation where you know they're, you're being forced to go into a union or you decide to actually join a union, would be join and then see what leadership has been up to, see whose side they really are on. And if you feel like they're not, if they don't, just like with the ATA, you know, the ATA is there for the trucking industry. They're there for the trucking companies. They're not there for the drivers. If you join this union and you don't think that the leadership has your back, you need to make as much noise as possible. Raise hell, get them out, make them hurt. That's the only way 
these people listen. You know, this this whole plan with AB5 was they were going to just destroy this whole operator owner operator system that they have there and then increase their numbers and hopefully make enough money to pay off these lawsuits. Well, if this if they destroy the supply chain and this all blows up in their faces and two years from now they don't have an increase in membership or, you know, it didn't work the way that they planned, they all need to go. Every single one of them. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the union is only as strong as its membership. Mm-hmm. If we got weak members who don't participate in the elections, who don't make noise, you're going to have an authoritarian strongman leading the union. But if you have a lot of memberships who are actively involved and who are, you know, voting, participating in the meetings, making noise, you're going to have better leadership. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're we're primates, and that's exactly what uh, happens in these chimpanzee tribes. It's like you got one alpha at the top, and then once he becomes tyrannical, all it takes is, you know, two smaller ones to team up together, and they rip them to pieces. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, Richie, uh, you've been super generous with your time. I know you're working real hard, and it's uh, Friday, so I want you to enjoy your weekend. And I'm sure you're sweating in that truck. So uh, where can people find you online if they want to keep in touch with uh, what you got going on? Um, on Twitter, you can find me at NJPeer. And join our Facebook group. It's called Peer Trucker NY slash NJ. All right, everybody. This has been uh, Rooster, Justin, and Richie for the Bat Trucker Podcast. You can catch us on your favorite podcast players, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, all the rest of them. You can read articles at backtotruckup.com and catch us on What the Truck on Wednesdays with uh, Dooner and the Dude. And also, one more time, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Over the Road Solutions, for uh, powering this podcast. <laughs>